Welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor, strength coach, and wrestling coach in Scottsdale, Arizona. As always, I have my gorgeous co-host with me, Alex Friedman, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado. Um, if you're new to the show, this is a show about building a fighter. We talking about we talk about the healthcare, the skill, uh, the nutrition, as well as the strength and conditioning behind combat sports, whether it be recreational or professional. Today, we're going to be talking about a more in-depth approach to micro training versus macro training, and it can be applied to healthcare, it can be applied to strength and conditioning, and it can be applied to skill work and workload in general. Just taking a micro versus macro approach to combat athletics so yeah and i think you need to know about this or at least have an idea of a general um what's happening whether you're an athlete or a coach uh the practices and the um emphasis that we talk about are going to be more coach oriented but as an athlete you have to know when your healthcare, when your strength conditioning needs to be micro it needs to be you exclusive um versus when a team atmosphere might serve you better and i think there's a healthy mix of that in uh, every athlete's training profile, but there's different approaches and different ways and best practices to split that up. Yeah. And it also it comes down to, you need to know when you should, when you f- should be comfortable speaking up, if you feel like something's wrong, I feel like athletes don't get their voices heard all of the time because coaches have a way they want to do things. And hopefully this episode will shed some light on if, if you notice some of these different trends are happening in your training, it doesn't mean they're wrong. Cause I, I love to say all the time when I coach, right, there's no right answers in wrestling. There's no right way to do things. There's a bunch of different ways and they, most of them end up at the same place. Some of them don't. The same thing can be said here. We want to give you guys the knowledge and the tools to know as athletes, if your workload is too high, if you need to take more of a micro versus macro approach, if the team in general just needs to focus more on certain different things that could help the team as a macro approach versus the one individual, which is a micro approach. Yeah, and that's definitely going to be a yin and yang approach from a coach and an athlete and find that relationship because as much as your coach or if you have a strength and conditioning coach, if you have a high-level coach, as much as they're an expert in the field of you know exercise science or bioenergetics or, or this or that, they're not the expert on your body. You are the expert on your body as an athlete. So you need to have, again, the tools and the understanding to understand when you're overdrawn, overtrained, or when you need to push it on a day maybe. But it's a yin and yang approach. And the biggest flaw that I've seen in my professional experience, and Austin could probably um, attest to this and speak to this, to this too, is um, ego getting in the way. I think as a coach, and I, I'm guilty as it was anybody else, you know, I say it's my program. I wrote it. This is what we're going to do today because it's the program. Right. When maybe that's not the most appropriate thing, but, um, right. My ego says we should do what I plan because I'm a master planner. <laughs> so it's, be- it's it, better than a masturbator. Stop. Just <laughs> make better jokes. Austin. Um, I laughed and that's what matters. Um, but playing off, playing off ego, I, man, I'm the same way. Most people know when they talk, like when they talk to me and I don't try to do this, but most people that know me, I'm a little bit more cocky. I do have an ego and I try to check that as much as possible but sometimes it comes out. Um, I have the exact same problem. When I write something up on the board, when I have a program, I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to stick to it. I didn't want to follow it to a T, mm-hmm. but you need to know on talking about like when micro is more important. You need to know when that athlete in general that's right in front of you may not be able to handle that workload they have that day. Um, I don't remember what podcast I was listening to, but they were talking about velocity-based training. 
um, I think it was actually Andre from Neuroforce was on a, was on a podcast and he's talking about like, Hey, this dude in front of me, his cat died that morning. Uh, he didn't have, he didn't have any water that day. He's been eating like shit all morning and he cannot do the 80% workload that I programmed for him that day. I need to be able to modify on the fly and I can't be so caught up in my ego and say, oh man, we have to hit 80% because 80% one day may not be the same as 80% another day. You have to take in all of these different stress factors that affect the body. So that is where the micro approach and talking about whether you're a skill coach, strength coach, healthcare worker, dietetics, whatever, you need to focus on the micro approach or the N equals one of the person in front of you. Cause that always is constantly evolving, just like every single human on earth. Yeah, absolutely. And the, one of the common things in strength conditioning, you know, maximal strength output is going to fluctuate up to 20% day to day, you know, and that's just based on fatigue levels and things like velocity-based training, um, just readiness testing in general can give you insights into how to treat that day, how to, you know, assess that athlete's uh, day-to-day readiness. And that market has been exponentially exploding with um, whoop or rings, uh, heart rate monitors and everything like that. And and those are tools that can give us valuable insights, but we shouldn't swear by them. You know Um, I think, data without context is just as dangerous, if not more dangerous than ignorance. Well, I want to ask you a question because you always put me on the spot and I like putting you on the spot. <laughs> All right, let's uh, go. Which one do you think is a better approach to a workload management situation for when we'll, we'll do two examples because you've worked with professional fighters. You've also worked with high school teams. So mm-hmm. some people are wrestling coaches in high schools that listen to this. Some people are working with fighters right. for a high school wrestling team, what do you think is a better approach to managing workload, getting everybody tracking their biometrics, if you will. So having a team HRV for training account, everybody puts their finger on the camera, gets their HRV and their subjective score that gets sent to the coach or taking the Mac, which is the micro approach or the macro approach, which would be all right, our training throughout the week is going to be, all right, Monday's a seven out of 10 RPE for practice rating of perceived exertion. So how intense it is. Uh, Tuesday is going to be a six out of 10. The next day is going to be an eight out of 10 and tracking it and trying to take the macro approach, talking about the practice in general that affects everybody. Yeah. And I think um, I'm going to answer in a kind of an ideal setting. And then I'm going to answer in more of like a realistic or a reality kind of setting. I think Ideally, you have a, a combination and a function of both of those happening, right? Where the coach is on the front end creating that macro plan and, and actually looking at the workload day to day, fluctuating that and, uh, for lack of a better term, periodizing it based upon competition, right? So Undulating. You have, not quite the same, but <laughs> good try. Good try. Um, so you have that front end plan, but on the back end as well, you have the athletes buy-in and you have the athletes um, consistency with that HRV or that micro tracking. And you can use, again, use that as a contextual data as a coach um, for what happens. But from experience, right? High schools don't have the budget, right? That, that's probably not going to be something that's prioritized. Um, if you do have that budget and you try and implement it, how many high schoolers are reliable enough to do that every day, right. Or, or be consistent with it. And I think that is even ex- extrapolated to, you know, any athlete. Um, yeah. you, you always have your guys that are on it, right. That have that consistent nature, that consistent blood. Um, but I think that's unrealistic in a, a lot of senses of expecting athletes to take it upon themselves and actually, um, give you valuable information 
day to day. Plus there's that, you know, social dynamic with the coach, right? And if I'm a freshman athlete and even if my HRV comes back red and I'm not going to tell the coach, I'm scared shitless walking into practice every day. Right. right. So, um, so I guess re- in a reality, I think a coach adjusting the plan on the front end and looking at like a macro plan and gauging their practices on a weekly, monthly, like phasic schedule is going to be a lot more effective in, in that sense. But then it also goes down to another micro thing where the coach can adjust day to day, right? So you have the plan in place, but then you adjust to what you're seeing with your athletes, whether it's um, fatigue, whether it's, you know, people want to get after it. Like you, you just have that as a coach and that's kind of the you know, the informed experience and and the the quote unquote art that is coaching is you have that ability to adapt and adjust to get the best out of your athletes every day uh, in and out. But I think you're chasing a fool's errand if you don't have any plan at all, you know, if you don't have (laughs) it. True. So um, does that. Yeah. Well, yes, it did. And the second follow-up to that question, because that's the high school scenario. Does that change when we're talking about professional fighters or just combat athletes in general? I think it has to a little bit because the the context changes, right? You're not in a position where you're direct oversight for the athletes or they're not like within your um, system for lack of a better term. So it is going to be pushed on the athletes a little bit more, you know, if that's their profession, if they're you know, actually pursuing that, then they're going to take accountability and it's, it's on them to um, take those micro approach steps and implement that system. Um, you as a coach have to enable it for sure and have to um, sometimes poke and prod it and um, develop that want and put value behind what you're doing or what you're implementing them to do. But I still think as a role in the coach, you have to make the plan. Like uh, as a coach period, you have to set your athlete up for success. And it's asinine to say, it's all on you. Come to me, I'll give you a good workout, but I'm not going to factor in any long-term planning. Yeah. it's And that's, you hit the nail on the head when you said that uh, you, you want to enable them to get better, right? You want to enable them to have a schedule. So mm-hmm. We talk about all the time, what's, what's the main goal of a coach? A main goal of a coach to, is to create self-sustaining athletes. So, right. That, that's one of the main goals. You want to make your athlete as self, as self-sustaining as possible. So that in the fight, they don't have to listen to 77 different cues that you say they can think on the fly and they have better decision-making that that's my goal as a coach, as a skill coach, at least. Um, but if we make them self-sustaining, and we don't also keep a framework, what are, what are we doing? We need to have a framework for them to be self-sustaining in. There's a reason why we're a coach, right? As a coach, we need to be able to be Yoda. Yoda didn't take that or didn't do the fight for Luke Skywalker. Yoda was in the corner talking to him up uh, like as a ghost talking to him while he's do, having a lightsaber battle. That's what we're talking. That's what we're talking about. He needs to be able to help him along the road. He needs to be able to pop up in that ghost form when something goes awry but he's not the one doing the fighting. So that's why we need, we need somebody to have that framework. We need somebody to be able to give the guidance, to be able to say, this is the road we're on. We need to stay on the road. Don't veer from the road. But at the same time, the athlete needs to know how to drive the freaking car. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's a perfect segue. And then going into some of the education from my master's program is we look at the word, you know, coach and how we defined or, or how the profession of being a coach came about. Right. And the word coach is literally, you know, a vehicle that you take from point A to point B. 
right? Or a stagecoach, or you think along those lines. That's how the term or the profession of a coach got its name is somewhere that, that gives direction and helps along the way, you know? And I think that is defined in our role that we assist along the way and provide the path, but ultimately we're not on the, or we're not the pinpoint of the journey. We're not the main character. Right. So in that, in that aspect, creating a self-sustaining athlete is an athlete that can drive and that knows everything to do. And maybe they're the best, you know, driver in the world we just give them the direction to go to achieve their goals. Right. And so there's different ways to go about that and different methodologies, but you, you have to stay in, in that lane as a coach. You can't make it all about me. I think that's again, an ego trap that coaches. Well, and I got to, to play off of your analogy right there. A great of yours. (laughs) Yeah, dude, I'm sticking with the car analogy. Like, so like I fancy myself a decent driver. I I know how to drive. I I can, I grew up in Chicago. We know how to drive cars. Um, (laughs) But your boy doesn't know anything about directions. So one time I was driving, I was just cruising on the highway. Um, Again, being a good driver, cutting in out of traffic, you know, cutting people off, normal Chicago driving stuff. And I ended up in Wisconsin. (laughs) Didn't know where I was going. I was just following the highway. I'm like, oh, I'm on the right. I'm on the right path. I'm like, I got this. My ego is like, fuck yeah, I know where I'm going. Nope. In Wisconsin, I'm right over the border. And at that point I call my dad who in this situation would be considered a coach or the coach's role. And he's like, look, this was, this was before I had a smartphone, by the way, that had unlimited data. So unfathomable for most people. Yeah. um, I can't remember a day that didn't drive without Google maps. Yeah. So it was hysterical, but to play off what you're saying, like I'm, I'm a decent driver. I can drive a good car, but guess what? If I don't have the roadmap, if I don't know where I'm going, I'm still lost. (laughs) Kind of worthless, right? <laughs> yeah, I end up in Wisconsin. Yeah, and and that's been my goal as a coach for a long time. And I think, um, and I, I think too, almost a fault I've saw it this way since I started coaching is like my goal is to make myself obsolete, right? If I can transfer the knowledge and give the athlete the, the empowerment, and I think you know as much as that's you know a noble goal of the profession, I don't think that's a reality. Because no matter how much I, I want an athlete to dive into their strength and conditioning and continue to understand energy systems or whatever, that's, that's not their main lane. That's not what they want to do. And I can always provide an expert opinion or, or give guidance in that direction. So, but the less, you know, the less hand on the wheel that I can give and the more general oversight that I have, I think that's doing my job better um, in the long run. Yeah. So to sum up, Cause I feel like that, that was a, that was a lot, but it was a lot of good points made. How I would sum that up would be if, if everybody can do any sort of biometric tracking, that would be great, but it's still on the coaches to provide that framework to, to whether you use a number system, whether you just subjective or like on on your own, you're like, Oh, we're going to manage workload today. We have just an outline. You need that outline as good as it is to have everybody tracking their scores. And as good as it is to, uh, to, want the best for these athletes in a perfect world that's great but in a world where they don't want to they don't want to show any sort of fear or any sort of chink in their armor if you will it, it it's not applicable whatsoever so try to do both but at the end of the day it's on it's on us as the support staff to provide them with that framework yeah and i think again i'm gonna extend on one of the points i think within that we need to factor in the you know the social the emotional state the the whatever relationship you have with the athlete i think it's again nonsense if you ignore all of that because you're going to get an athlete saying something that's different than the reality that is there um i i remember back in 
maybe two years ago, I was at a play performance conference and uh, the whole topic of the day was uh, sports technology or sports science or, you know, deriving data from sports. And, and I, I was there and I think six out of eight speakers, and these are speakers from, you know, you know, Clemson and or University of Oregon and, and really high performing division one teams where in the collegiate setting, you have a ton of oversight of your team and you can collect some reliable data and, and make this whole sports science thing work. Um, and only, I think six out of eight of them said, don't trust your technology. You know, technology without context is, is stupid. So they almost like went back on their expertise or their, or their whole topic of the conversation there. Like you need to be face to face with the athletes, see them perform, factor in their data of, you know, is it finals week? That That's going to huge take a huge psychological toll on athletes and um, maybe more applicable in the MMA world. You know, how much is this athlete cutting? How much weight is he cutting? How is that going to affect his training? How is that going to affect his um, outputs, his physiological outputs? So seeing the context and then making those rapid adjustments as a coach and, and understanding the data that you're being handed, if you can get consistent data handed to you is, again, the, you know, the special spice or the ingredient. The cherry on to, top. Right. Leads to better coaching. Uh, let's, let's transition from the mat to the strength strength room the the gym if you will uh the gym the, gym, the box oh, if you're, you're cross, awkward if you're, if you're, you're awkward stop you're awkward <laughs> that's that's it uh, so again asking you questions so let's talk a little bit about the macro versus micro approach since since you've done both on uh, strength and strength and conditioning so what are the benefits what what do you like more what do you like less about training teams so we'll say three plus yeah. um, versus individuals one-on-one and we're talking about just just athletes not per, not like personal training like gen pop yeah, stuff. yeah yeah um and i mean it's training it's comparing apples to oranges right and i say that in a sense and i think that is such a stupid saying um because it fruit is stupid. Can, fruit can be compared um but in comparing different fruit, there's a lot of different aspects to it, right? You can still compare them, but it's a different ballgame, right? With an individual that you're training, you get to dive deep into the strength of weaknesses. You get to uh, completely understand an individual. You get to um, be more involved and a lot more specific with the training. Um, That being said, you're losing out on maybe a a team atmosphere or a camaraderie or an environment that just gets fostered via competition, via um, friendship, via whatever that you have along a group session, which group sessions are great too, because as much as you you miss on the individuality and the specificity you make up for with the competition, you make up for with the, the motivation, the extra you know, whatever it is to feel at home or feel good about being at the gym with your buddy, like buddy, teammate, whatever, however you want to say it. Um, so the family, the family environment, if you will, absolutely, like why, yeah. why people like to go to jujitsu. It's the same mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Cause you see the, the guys and everybody's like-minded and, and you get something, a common denominator to grow off of and to work on. So I personally, I personally, I think there's a time and place for both. I think, um, you get in a group session, maybe when you're out of camp, maybe when um, the specifics of your uh, training camp are a little less important, when you just need a time to get after it, or you can kind of ride on the general macro plan. That's a great time to be in a team environment and to, you know, maybe strength train with three or four of your like-minded training partners. Um, and then, but when it comes to 
a camp and maybe you're four to six weeks out or even further, um, hopefully if you're starting this at eight weeks out, you get more to an individualized micro approach where we can actually run an assessment and say, what's the style for this fight? What is our technical tactical approach and how can I support that in a strength and conditioning sense to allow better performance for you individually? Because in wrestling, MMA, jujitsu, you're going on the mat, you're going on the mat alone. You're getting a knockdown alone. So that's going to be the ultimate goal um, within the training camp. That being said, there's real life, adjustments that need to be made right maybe um maybe an athlete is absolute dog shit if they're training with partners (laughs) all the time or they're completely unfocused and we were not gonna we're not gonna accomplish any goals maybe that individual is better off training individually year-round yeah yeah i would say just so I wanted to bring this up to alex because i i only do one one one-on-one outside of the wrestling room yeah. So my, cause I, cause I am mostly kind of performance care. A lot of what I do is healthcare. Um, so even if there are two people there at the same time, they're doing completely separate lifts uh, not completely separate, but their own workout. The one thing I feel like my guys lack a lot is that competitive atmosphere, mm-hmm. something I've seen you do. And I've seen a couple other people, but I, you were the first one I saw. So I'm going to give you credit, um, is you put one aerodyne bike on one side, one aerodyne bike on the other side, you put a little ball in the middle and we're going to go. And whoever gets the ball to the other person's aerodyne bike, they win. And I, that's one of those things like you you can't tell me that that's going to make people enjoy conditioning more because riding an aerodyne bike is boring as all shit. Yeah. Like nobody, nobody likes to do it unless right. you're Henry Corrales and you're a little bit like crazy, but like, <laughs> yeah, but like not a lot, not a lot of people like to just ride an aerodyne bike. You like to ride the aerodyne bike because you want to beat your teammate. You want to beat your friend. You want to do these different things. You want to compete. So like even, even with my testing, like I make a point as long as it's not healthcare data, if, it, if it's performance metrics, I have a leaderboard. I tell everybody who's in first. So if you're doing your 15 minute cal or 15 minute max cal on the air bike, I'm going to tell you who's in first, who's in second, who's in third. And if you're not trying to beat them, I know exactly what I'm dealing with. I know that you need to pick it up on the competitive front. If you're not trying to win that, then I might not be the right spot for you, to be honest yeah. with you. So so just the one thing, just because I only see one side versus the bolt, the double-sided, I guess, sword of kind of what we're dealing with, is when you're doing one-on-one, you have to find a way to get that competitive nature in there. So for me, what I do is like I, I put them on a clock where you're competing against yourself. I, I sometimes throw it back. If we're doing med ball stuff, I do it with them and I throw it harder. I put a hole in their chest, dude. <laughs> like, and I try to compete on my own if, if you will sometimes, but yeah. And I think there, there's two sides of that coin as well. Cause I think anywhere up to, and, and I'm, I'm thinking of one coach uh, and a strength conditioning player. I used to work at uh, a gym where we had four you know, clients working out and all four programs were completely individualized. And like, I think that was a great approach because it gave the athlete a lot more um, autonomy in their program and a lot more responsibility to actually carry out their program, and not have me count reps or hold their hand. Um, and I, as a coach can walk around and give um, technical cues and I can actually coach, not worry about, you know, how many sets is it again? And then, like, I, <laughs> can't stand that but um me and every every strength coach ever but it it allows for more content to be delivered from the coach to the athlete and the athlete is again accountable and responsible for their own sheet so i think there is a a place where those two things can meet 
And I think that's a hundred percent doable with the competitive atmosphere. I'm working out, you know, within my family, within my group, but I'm doing a more individualized approach for me. So the, and that, what I've been taught is that semi-private approach or semi-private training. And I think that's a, a, a very viable way to go about it. Yeah. That's what a gym down here. I love to give them shouts out, shout outs. Cause they're, they're fantastic. They're nationwide or worldwide, but OPEX, yeah. they were started by James Fitzgerald. He was the first CrossFit games person ever gotten a huge fight saying, Hey, 90 year olds shouldn't be snatching. That's fucking, stu- <laughs> that's fucking stupid. We should have semi-private approaches. And a lot of people can be in the gym at one time, but they're all doing separate workouts. And we have two coaches on the floor and they're doing these different things and they do that so well. And it's, and it really, that's kind of, I don't have an OPEX gym because you need to be certified with them and all these different things, but I saw what they did well. And that's how I, that's what I like about my approach. That being said, I still don't get that competitive environment. It's really hard to supplement. So I, it's, it's almost as if like, I wish for skill work that I was only one-on-one and then I like somebody drove up right at the end and they started their conditioning when one of my, when one of my fighters was doing conditioning, that would be yeah. the perfect scenario. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. And it is, it is a different feeling when you're in the weight room with your whole team or you have, you know, yeah. even if you get up to like 15 to 20 guys in the weight room and you're all in the you know, same program, like there, there's definitely a camaraderie and a fun to that. I mean, I, I used to think the weight room at UWL when we were all in there together, like if I'm lifting next to Zach Tooley, I'm, I'm picking up my game right yeah i mean that that dude is huge that guy made me feel bad every day i stepped into the weight room he made me feel (laughs) real bad about myself no for sure and and he's done gone on to do a bunch of awesome stuff and and we're actually currently programming for him for his um army physical combat test i don't know if that's the acft um so i like both and i think as a strength and conditioning coach you need to be adaptable to be able to do both like period um but if I had to choose, ultimately, I would probably opt for the team environment. Um, yeah, I just think I just think that's a lot more fun for me personally. I think there's a lot more uh, teachable opportunities. I love to you know stop a whole group and, and pinpoint on one one specific technical, moral, you know, ethical dilemma or whatever. Um, Austin just gave me a weird look when I said that, but it's fine. <laughs> no, I was, I was actually just thinking that's my thinking face. I was, you I was trying to, often, do you? no, no, I don't. That was a weird face for you. Uh, <laughs> no, I was just thinking, I, I was trying to think about the name of somebody's gym that I wanted to also shout out. There's a guy down here in Phoenix. He's in Tempe. Justin Wakefield that works with a lot of NFL and uh, MLB players. Mm-hmm. And I follow him on Instagram. He's a super cool guy, but what he does really well, dude, he's got the best team environment I've ever seen. Like these guys are all separate teams. They're on rivals, but yeah. he's got a, like, do you know what a bump box is? You know, those like boom boxes. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's got, that's like the new thing is a bump box, which is the brand name for it. And okay. he's got a fucking, he's got a karaoke microphone attached to it. And during <laughs> the, during the lifts, like guys are going over to and like talking shit to everybody else in the weights. It's just, a, it, <laughs> I've only been down there a couple of times, but it was such a cool environment to be in. And that's really, that's what brought, that's literally in my head why I wanted to bring it up to you. Cause you've been in mm-hmm. both those environments yeah. and just to see which one you liked more. Cause it seemed super cool, like an awesome atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that managed very well, I think is very productive. And I think that is a, a super um, 
good way to go about uh, enjoying the weight room and getting into that. But I think that it can also be almost a toxic environment too. I think there are downfalls of that. If you know, we carry it too far, the competitiveness gets ugly and, and things like that. But I think, again, that's in the role of the coach to control the environment and, and try and create a, an atmosphere that, you know, one athletes feel good about going to, you know, if, if I'm an athlete that's scared of the weight room and I, I get in that hyped up competitive environment, I don't think that's going to do very no. well for me. But again, that's on the adapt, adapt, adaptability of the coach. Yeah. And moving that forward to my realm with healthcare, I would almost say the exact opposite what of what Alex just said, yeah. because a lot of what um, I guess Kairos and PTs, something that a, a very big criticism of what I have with a lot of my colleagues is that they see multiple patients at a time, whether they're athletes or not. Yeah. When we are talking about athletes, we need to make sure they're getting one-on-one -on -one attention. You shouldn't be thinking about the patient in the room next to you when you're dry needling somebody, when you're trying to focus on the fine-tuned details or the corrective exercises of teaching this person breathing, teaching this person how to use their lateral glute. Um, all of these little like micro changes, if you will, they need to have a micro approach to them. Funny enough, you can't take a macro approach, even though everybody knows like the reason why people do it is because that's a better profit margin. You, when you are focusing on the athlete in general, when you're focusing on these healthcare work or on, on the athletes in the healthcare setting, uh, we got to make sure that we take a micro approach to them. And we're not, we're not trying to rush through their treatment to get to somebody else. And not saying everybody does that, but trying to make sure that we give them the time that they deserve. My One of my mentors says it really well. Like I turn my phone off at the beginning of the day. And then before I walk into every single room, I take a deep breath. I clear my mind and I give that patient every single part of my being for that 15 minutes they're in there or 20 minutes they're in there. And then when they walk out, they take a big breath, go do whatever they have to do. And then they do that for the next patient. And that's extremely, extremely important when we're working with combat athletes. God, that's beautiful. Um, that's yeah, that's something that, that I did early on in my career too, with the, the whole deep breath and resetting and getting focused um, before you get on the floor. Um, but what I wanted to say was, exactly the point that you brought up with the different focus, the different focuses of our professions, you know, I'm a general preparation specialist, right? That, that's what I look at myself as, as I, I am going to get this athlete generally prepared and give them a higher potential to perform a sport that can be done on a more general scale with more athletes at one time, right? And when you're a specific specialist that deals with injury, that deals with a, a specific fight perf um, preparation and things like that. So you need that more micro and, and dosed approach um, with the total focus on here's how an athlete moves. And, and with my sessions, I've, I've noticed it exponentially too. And I, I often have a hard time marrying the two in the middle where maybe I need, I have an athlete that needs that micro approach. I, I need to give them cues how to breathe and I need to teach them from square one. Um, but I also have 19 other athletes that I, I need to coach at the same time. So that's, that's hard to negotiate no matter what coach you are or, or how many kid people that you have. And the quality of that particular situation can go up and down depending on the numbers and who you're with. Right. And it comes down to having, I, I feel like I say communication way too much in this podcast, but the communication with the athlete and, and talking to them and saying like, look, I think you need extra help in X, Y, and Z. I'd like to work with you one-on-one. -on -one. We should schedule up the time. Yeah. Like that's all, that solves everything and not embarrassing. I think it was actually, it was in Brett Bartholomew's book. He talks about what, I don't remember what archetype, but I feel like people, we've had this talk. People 
way too much into the archetypes and don't look at the broad scale good of what the books did and they yeah, take it like a textbook yeah we're i mean i want to dig into that for a second but like the the principles of the book are, are pretty on point but if you're a coach sitting in a room trying to label all of your athletes you're yeah 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 i know but i you're a hater i'm a lover what i would say is i i think the book did more good than bad and that's how i look at a lot of things and if if something does more good, it's better for society to have it. But I digress because that was not the point of what I was saying. The point of what I was saying is one of the archetypes, I don't remember which one it was. He's like, look, if I say in front of the team that I need you to focus on, I, I want to spend more time one-on-one with you and pull and say, and say, we need extra work. That's going to embarrass some people. So that comes down to your communication skills and talking. Hey, some people are fine with you saying that in front of the group and calling them out, that type of thing. Some people want to be said away from the group. Some people want yeah. to have that conversation in your office, if you will. So no, if you do run into that scenario, that's something to take note of. Because that that could be a bridge burner or a bridge builder with your athletes and moving forward into your relationship as a coach and an athlete. Yeah, and then that's a great principle because the same action taken by uh, the same action delivered to two different athletes gives a complete different message. You know, maybe one athlete I'm you know cueing heavily or even giving like a a, um, a varied exercise or I'm modifying on the spot. One athlete's going to think man, this coach really wants me to succeed. He's specializing this for me and, and giving me an advantage. The other athlete is going to think, why is he holding me back? I should be doing what the group's doing. I got to beat Johnny over there, right? Yeah, or or he's embarrassing me in front of my friends. Exactly. And so that's, again, where being a coach is a communication endeavor and a um, microdose approach as well as your macro. And we can look at that. I mean, that scales it down to one session, right? Where your macro approach is what lifts we're doing and what sequencing and order we're doing them. And the micro approach is how do I change it for every individual athlete? Yeah. It's, <laughs> I love, like, I love that. Like the, in, and I don't want to spend too much time on this. And I think we're pretty much good with what we were talking about, but the intricacies of being a coach mm-hmm. is outweigh so much of the technical aspects. Like being a good coach is so fucking hard. Like I can teach a, I can teach a monkey to adjust somebody. I'll be real honest with you. It's not that hard, but I, you know what? I can't teach a monkey when an adjustment needs to happen, what angle that the adjustment should potentially be at. Cause you have to know the feeling, all of these different things that play into being a good clinician and a doctor, not a technician. Yeah. The same thing that, yeah, the same thing that could be said with coaching. I can teach anybody to program. It's really not that fucking hard, but knowing when to program, knowing when to switch things, knowing how to talk to people, knowing how to be a good coach and not just a programmer. Those are two very different things. Yeah. But man, what, what is all of our secondary and, and tertiary education centered on, right? You get, you get an exercise science degree, not a coaching degree. You get kinesiology masters, not a coaching masters, which yep. is one of the more deliberate steps that I think I've taken in my coaching experience is that I did not want to double down on the objective biomedical science within my master's, right? That, that's probably the leading reason that I picked DU and the sports psychology and coaching development masters that I did is because it gives, you know, the other side of the coin and, and, and some research backing to the experiential practice that I, I have been doing for five, six years now. Um, so I think that that's all interesting because we place the emphasis on the technique, on the, the biomechanics, on the, all of this energetic stuff that like at the end of the day may or may not matter depending on what emotional state your athletes in. You know, I, uh, 
and this is a story that I love to tell because I think it just frames it in a very clear light um, as far as like attitudes and, and physiology. Um, and this comes from when I was coaching or interning at the CU football team. We were looking at accommodating resistance, right? And we had a phase that we were using chains in the weight room. And I was like, well, we have the bands too. Why don't we use the bands as the accommodating resistance? Like that'd be an easier setup. That'd be more practical in whatever sense. And um, one of the assistant coaches who I looked up to, he looks at me and he's like, do you think these guys are going to be excited to walk in here and lift bands on the barbell like, <laughs> or, or do you think they're going to give a little more effort and get jacked up and have that team community hype feel if there's change clinking around off the barbell you know and that's a pretty straightforward answer and 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 i don't think this is exclusively true all the time but um one thing he said is like psychology beats physiology you know and i think yeah, yeah. that happens within a workout and Again, that can be taken to too far of extreme, but I think in that situation, it was applicable. Hell yeah. I want to end it on that because that's an awesome anecdote. So that was our micro versus macro approach to everything. Um, as always, I'll give the little spiel. If you guys listen, you love it. Give us a follow uh, on Instagram at building a fighter. Also rate the podcast. We, we don't get shared to more people unless you guys share it, our listeners. So share it to everybody, rate, leave a review. We appreciate everything you guys do. We just want to get out there and talk to more people. Cause if you couldn't tell, we like talking. Um, I'll still more than I. I, I love talking. I love talking into a microphone. One of my favorite things. I'm one of those weird sociopaths that likes hearing his own voice. <laughs> that is, you are by far the exception on that. Yeah. But as always, uh, if you got any questions, they're in uh, our email and Instagrams are in the show notes, uh, as well as thank you guys so much for listening. This is Dr. Austin. Alex, thank you guys all again. We out. We out.